When Nancy and I lived in Texas, it seems like a long, long time ago, out when I was in seminary, we met some great friends at the church we began to attend, really the, the Sunday that we arrived there. But we developed some great friends, and a, and a couple of those friends were Rick and Amy. Like us, when we met them, uh, we had no children. We were trying to plug in and find friends, and, and they became really good friends and still are to this day. As a matter of fact, we just received a, a wedding invitation from their son who was born while we were there. And I still call. He's a big Texas Rangers fan. I'm a big Texas Rangers fan. And so we call and, and rejoice together and commiserate together. And, and it's, it's a good friendship, one that lasts through the years. Well, there's an incident that happened as I started, as I was telling Nancy this morning, as I was going through the file box that I keep in my mind, which is filled, obviously, with odds and ends and cobwebs. But every once in a while, I will re-encounter a story or an event And I say, you know what, that's a perfect fit to lead into what I want to share. And I remember it was a Christmas season, and Amy told us this in in hindsight, and she told us laughing about it, and I'm glad she was able to laugh about it. But she had gone to an in-law's Christmas gathering. For those of you who are married and have gone to in-law's Christmas gatherings, you know that sometimes you're the outlaw. Sometimes you're not the one that fits in the best. Well, Amy was there, and they were unwrapping gifts. They came to that time where they unwrapped the gifts. And she gets to one, and with excitement, because she was always an excitable one, with excitement, she began to unwrap the gift. Well, once it was exposed, the excitement just evaporated from her. And she tried to cover it up. She put on the smile, tried to act excited. But she pulls it out, and she goes, oh, lemon drops. Did I forget to tell you she hates lemon drops? But as I thought about that, and as I thought about this Christmas series, I began to think, you know what? Christmas can be a lot like that for us too. There are things that we expect and things we want. And when we look at that package so beautifully wrapped, our imaginations begin to to run wild as to what could possibly be in there. And so you pick it up and you shake it around. And you know, this could be that Washington Redskins jersey that I wanted. Or or the Georgia Bulldogs or LSU Tigers. It could it could be the jer- football jersey that I wanted. And then you open it up and you find out, oh, underwear and socks. Just what I wanted. Or maybe, ladies, you, you get the box and you think, you know, this, this is kind of looks like a jewelry box. And you begin to unwrap it and you've got visions of, of a pearl necklace or sapphire earrings or perhaps some of you diamond rings. I don't know. And you begin to unwrap it and you find out that it is this monstrous multicolored brooch. Oh, what is it? We have those old lemon drop moments every single year. If somebody's got a multicolored brooch, I'm sure your wife is going to love it. So don't worry about that. (laughs) But the first Christmas was also for a lot of people something that was unexpected and sadly unwanted. You see, there was this, this sense of expectation, desire for a Messiah to rise up. 
one who would come and fix their problems and set things right. And they had in their mind this image of who this Messiah would be. And this morning, we sang about the birth of that Messiah. We sang about the crucifixion of that Messiah. But the Messiah who was born in Bethlehem was not exactly what people expected and not what some of them wanted at all. They were looking for someone completely different. Well, today we began a series of messages in December entitled Revolutionary. And in it we will consider the Jesus whose life and teachings absolutely rattled the cage of the authorities, both political and religious, whose birth, whose life, whose teachings, whose death, whose resurrections, resurrection literally turned the world upside down. The Jesus whose coming began a revolution, but not, not a revolution with guns and bombs and bloodshed in the streets, instead a revolution of grace, of of love, a revolution of forgiveness and transformation. The Jesus who was both unexpected and quite frankly unwelcomed. And as we study this Jesus together, as we look at him honestly, my prayer is that it would start a revolution in us that we would be changed as we encounter a Jesus who changed the world. So where do we begin? Probably not where you would think. Oh, we flip back to Matthew. We flip back to Luke. And we we began this series by looking back at the birth of this baby. No. Instead, I want to call your attention to a passage in Matthew 16, verse 15. Well, the question that Jesus asked his disciples. But what about you, Jesus asked Who do you say that I am? The Christ who came to be Messiah was not the Messiah that people expected. They were looking for someone, something else. What kind of expectations then were there there? What were the different expectations? Well, let me just... I'm just going to cover two of those this morning. There were different expectations, but let me, let me just share two of those with you because these are the, the big ones. First of all, they expected a, a military leader. They expected a military leader, a king who would ride in on a white horse, sword in hand, shining helmet, you know, just, just ready to take charge. And the reason they think like this is because they related stories over and over again about a king named David. You remember King David. He was not the first king that Israel had. Saul was the first king. But as David came in, he came in wielding a sword. And he expanded that kingdom. And he brought peace within that realm, these expanded borders. He subdued the enemies. And as people began to think about a king, they said, that's the kind of king we want. We want a king who is anointed by God, who will come in here and kick butt and take names. That's who we want to be our king. And you see, the situation there, if you hadn't heard, was pretty dire. Judea was not under their own control. They were under the control of Rome. Rome basically ruled the known world. Rome ruled everything. And so the king that sat on the throne, Herod, 
the king there, he was not there by his own accord. He was there by appointment. He was there because the king allowed him to be there. If you wanted to do business in the empire, you were not just under the authority of your own government. You were under the authority of Rome. And on every street corner in every city, they'd find Roman soldiers. A constant reminder that they were in bondage yet again. They were enslaved yet again as a people. They were not determining their own destinies, but their destinies were being determined by the Romans. So what the people wanted was a military leader, a military king, who would come in and kick the Romans out and reestablish a government and expand its borders and give them peace once more. But there was another group of people. They were looking for a different kind of leader. They were looking for a prophetic leader. I did not say pathetic leader. They had plenty of those. A prophetic leader. They were looking for people like Moses. Moses, who was called by God, who went to Egypt, who led the people out of bondage, who made sure that they were fed and had water and had their needs met as they traveled to the promised land and through that period of wandering in the wilderness. A Moses through whom God spoke. A Moses through whom God gave them the Ten Commandments, the laws that governed their lives. Oh, if we could only have another Moses. If we can't have David, can we have Moses? Someone who will come in and make sure there's food on the table. Someone who will make sure there's water flowing. Someone who will make sure that, that God speaks to us yet again. Could we have another Moses? And if not Moses, if not Moses, then perhaps we could have an Elijah or a Jeremiah. Someone who had no trouble standing in the face of kings and saying, Thus says the Lord our God. Someone who would stand up for the oppressed, for the beaten down, for the downtrodden. We need a prophet like that. Someone who will sweep in and change everything. But Jesus did not come to be a political liberator or just one more voice speaking on behalf of God. The prophet Isaiah told them and tells us the kind of Messiah Jesus came to be. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to Isaiah 53. Would you stand with me as we honor God's word this morning? Beginning with verse 1. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Heavenly Father, may we hear and understand this word today in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. The Jesus who came along, the Jesus who healed and taught in the streets, the Jesus who interacted with those people that the religious elite would not interact with, the Jesus who did not compromise the truth, the Jesus who related to the common people, he came with such promise. He spoke with such authority. He challenged the establishment. He backed up his words with personal integrity and spiritual power. But in spite of all this, John's gospel says, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. He came to his own, but they rejected him. Now why? Why? Why would they reject the Messiah sent by God? Why would they reject him, turn their backs on him, spurn him? The answer is sadly simple. Jesus did not come to give the people what they wanted. He came to give the people what they needed. And you know that hadn't changed. Jesus is not here today to give you what you want. He's here to give you what you need. His birth, his life, his teachings, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, they were all completely revolutionary. They shouldn't have been. People should have expected this kind of Messiah. This was the kind of Messiah that was foretold. And yet when he came, they opened the package and they said, Oh, lemon drops. Unexpected, unwanted, despised, and rejected. But when I say Jesus was a revolutionary, what do I mean? Because we also have images in our minds of revolutionaries, don't we? Some of you may think of Fidel Castro or Vladimir Lenin. That may be where your mind goes. Or in a more positive sense, as you think about the American Revolution, you may think of George Washington, or you may think of our founding fathers. You may think of Nathaniel Green, for whom this county is named. 
That may be your idea of what a revolutionary is. And, and in both cases, they were men who led revolts against the established government and set up a new form of government. In both cases, they were revolutionaries. They, they threw, overthrew governments, and they, they did so with, with bloodshed. When I'm talking about Jesus, that's not what I'm talking about. The only blood that Jesus came to shed was his own. He didn't come to cause riots in the street. He didn't come for people to take up arms. Jesus came as a different kind of revolutionary. If we go to the dictionary and we look it up, this is what we'll find. The dictionary defines revolutionary as constituting or bringing about a major or fundamental change. Jesus fits that definition to a T. This is at the core of who Jesus was and what Jesus did. People were looking for one kind of Messiah, the kind who would come and do their bidding in their way and in their timing, but Jesus did not come to be the Messiah they wanted or the Messiah they expected. Just as Isaiah foretold hundreds of years before, Jesus came to suffer and die for lost humanity. The Apostle Peter affirms that. In 1 Peter 3, he says, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. My musical taste is rather eclectic. You may walk into my office and hear Handel's Messiah playing, or you may walk in and hear Toby Mac. I'll listen to Switchfoot. I'll go back and listen to Keith Green. I listen to all kinds of things. Well, the other day, I was listening to one of the last albums by Johnny Cash. Now, I got to tell you, growing up, I didn't appreciate his talent. Uh, He's an extraordinarily talented man. But the music he did later in life actually hits me more because it was then he was struggling with the real issues of life and death and and his, his own uh, faith, and he was struggling with those issues, reliving some of the past mistakes that he had, been ma- he had made. Well, there's one song that he had on one of those later albums that was called Personal Jesus. It was one that he did, redid that some other folks had done before him. I don't know if you've even heard about it or not. And as I listen to that song, I am, at, on one, t- uh, one way I am, I am really attracted to that song, but there's another part of me that, is, that wants to turn it off. And that's kind of a strange thing, and, it, and it's because the whole concept of a personal Jesus. On the one hand, that sounds so good. A personal Jesus. That is someone who cares about my needs, someone who's my Savior, my Lord. I've made a personal commitment to follow Him. It is a personal relationship that I have with Jesus Christ. We're desperate for that. We're hungry for that. You know, I talk to people all the time who are looking for something in their lives, something to fill that need, something that is not church, it's not religion, it's not rules and regulations, it's not rituals. They're looking for something real, tangible, personal. And in that case, when I listen to that song, I'm thinking, yes, that's what we need, a personal Jesus. On the other hand, the part I don't like about it is this personal Jesus, who is he? 
Is he the Jesus who's revealed, revealed himself in the pages of Scripture? Is he the Jesus who actually walked and talked and lived and died and rose again in the Bible? Or is he the Jesus that we've created? A Jesus after our own image. A, a Jesus that we have shaped and fashioned with our own hands. Is he a personal Jesus? Just like we have a personal playlist on our iPods. He fits my style. He does what I want him to do. And in doing so, he ceases to have any claim on my life, any right to my undying allegiance or any sway on my actions or even any influence on my finances. He's my own personal Jesus. He's 90% Savior, 10% Lord. He's a Jesus I've shaped and fashioned who doesn't have a judgmental bone in his body who's always ready to pat me on the back, pat me on the head, say, that's all right, son, that's all right, daughter, don't worry about that. Who holds a blind eye when it comes to my sin and selfishness, my greed, but who's there standing right with me when I'm at worship. He's my personal Jesus who sits on the sidelines and just waits till I call him. He doesn't interfere. He doesn't bother me. He doesn't put any demands on my life. But he's always there to bail me out of trouble. He's always there to stretch that last half gallon of gasoline when I'm on the way back from Athens. He's always there when I need him. And he leaves me alone when I don't. He's my own personal Jesus. Folks, that's not who Jesus is. He is not a full-time Savior and a part-time Lord. He is, not, he is not a Savior who is there at my beck and call. Instead, it is me who is to be at his beck and call. When you redefine Jesus to make him more palatable, safer, less authoritative. You've done the same thing that the Jews did 2,000 years ago. They had a Messiah in their minds that they wanted, and this is the kind they would follow. Jesus didn't fit their mold. You may be saying the same thing that they said. Give me the Savior I want, not the Savior I need. And in doing so, you're replacing the revolutionary Jesus who was so radical and so revolutionary and so dangerous that he had to be killed, crucified. You've replaced him with one who's neutered, emptied of his power, and stripped of all authority. I think one of the reasons that Christmas is not as threatening as Easter is because a baby's involved. Babies are relatively safe. Notice I qualified that for the new parents among us. They are relatively safe. No, they they won't let you sleep when you want to. They often have accidents that are unexpected. But they're safe. 
but not the baby Jesus. When you go home and you look at your nativity scene set up, or you see one around the streets, or you get a card with the baby Jesus, so serene, so beautiful, so innocent, so tender, so helpless, perhaps with a little halo around his head, just so you know it's him. That was awfully convenient and fictitious. But you look at that baby, and you ooh, and you all, and you forget that the baby came to die. Not just the way all of us will die, but to die as a suffering Savior who would pay the price for our sins, who would be rejected by the very people he came to save, and who even as he hung on the cross was spat upon and cursed. And yet he said, Father, forgive them because they're totally clueless. They have no idea what they're doing. You and I know. When we remember Jesus, let us remember that he is not safe or controllable. You can't wrap him up and stick him in a room and close the door and let him cry himself to sleep. Jesus is dangerous. Jesus is a revolutionary. And this Christmas, I invite you to join the revolution. I'm not telling you to go out and get guns and bombs and raid the streets and knock in your neighbor's door. Pin them down and say, all right, accept Jesus or else. We started this last year. If you remember last year, you were given cards. This year, you're going cardless. Last year, we provided cards, and we asked you to do acts of grace and love and mercy in your community, in your neighborhood. And as you did so, to give them the card that said, this is just to let you know that God loves you. And on the back, it had the church information. My intent was to have cards for you today. I've been persuaded otherwise. As much as I would like the free publicity of your Grace Fellowship, that is the wrong motivation. I'm asking you this Christmas season, from now until December 25th, and who knows, maybe it might stick with you and spill over into the rest of the year. I'm asking you, to start a revolution of grace, of love, of compassion, of forgiveness, and of transformation. Don't do it in the name of Grace Fellowship. Do it in the name of Jesus.